Almost 20 years ago, I was in the little Christian bookstore uh, where we lived down in Gallup, New Mexico. It was uh, not a real going concern. It was kind of a little hole-in-the-wall place. But I, I happened to uh, find this book, and on a whim, I, I bought it. It's an IVP book, and it's called Pastor Carl's Rookie Year. And uh, it's, uh, it was written by a fellow named, whose name was Chuck Westerman. And he wrote uh, essays for the Wittenberg Door, which later became the Door. Some of you will know about that subversive uh, publication. But um, uh, and it was uh, this was his fictional account. He kind of fictionalized his life and his experience as he first became a, a pastor in a church. He was he lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And uh, the, the sad thing is that uh, this was published in 93, uh, about 1991, after just a few years in the ministry and, and being married and leaving children behind, he, he developed brain cancer and, and passed away. But after, his, after he passed away, his wife t- collected his stories and his essays and put them together, and IVP published this book. And it's, uh, it's quite humorous, uh, as you might imagine, but it was just, it's something I've gone back to and used it several times in sermons, and I want to read uh, part of chapter 1 as I begin this morning. He says, uh, Pastor Carl says, I realized this summer that the reason I became a pastor was that A, most churches have softball teams, and B, if you're a minister of the church, they definitely have to let you play and probably have to let you start. Gee, that almost makes me sound shallow. And then he, uh, I'll skip a little bit, and he says, it started innocently enough. I was there, glove-oiled jersey, numeral 27, ironed on the front, the rev stenciled neatly on the back, properly half-tucked in, popping the ball in my mitt, fiercely chomping away on my half a pack of Major League Chew, the bubblegum, not the tobacco, psyched for the first practice of the broad, on the broad green lawn of the public park around the block from the church. The tiger, the kid, the beast, I hoped my boundless enthusiasm would get me tagged with the letter, latter nickname in time. Maybe biblical scruples aside, I could get my number changed to 666. The tiger, the kid, the beast had come to play, or at least to practice, ready to assume the crouch behind the plate, hot dog catcher for the Zion Community All-Stars. And then he talks about the first game against Mannheim Lutheran. We're down six runs by the end of the second inning. I've blown a relay to home and popped up weekly in my first at bat. Composure, composure. This isn't like practice. I'm so eager to get at Ed's pitches that I'm leaning in and I almost get my head taken off by a free-swinging batter. Finally, the burly Lutheran second baseman catches the tip of my mitt as he he makes a cut at the ball outside the plate and he he gets first base on an interference call. I remonstrate gently with the umpire. Interference? Who's interfering with whom? I'm just trying to catch the pitch. That guy stepped out of the batter's box to go after it. Chill out, pastor, next batter. But wait, wait, how can you... Oh, Carl. Ed is calling me out to the mound for a conference. I tell the umpire to hold on a second. I jog out to the pitching rubber. Can you believe chill out, pastor? So I've been told. Just let the pitches come into you. The ump's right. Calm down. We'll get back in this. That's when I noticed the rest of my teammates looking at each other and rolling their eyes. Okay, okay. I troop back behind the plate and pull down my catcher's mask. The next guy dumps a single into right. Then Ed walks the opposing shortstop on five pitches. The last one I swear right over the plate and belt high. I'm a little miffed, I admit. Ball four, that was a strike. The umpire smiles confidently. I call him as I see him, Rev. Is that with or without your contacts in? 
A groan goes up across the field. I, I catch sight of my wife behind the backstop with her hand over her face. <laughs> the ump's smile fades. We aren't questioning my professional, professional acumen here, are we, Pastor? I grumble a bit more, but you know, it's all in bounds, all part of the show. Base is loaded, let's get on with it. The next batter hangs back on two perfect pitches, both called balls. I'm steamed now in an Old Testament sort of way, the righteous anger of Jehovah. I glare at the ump. The next pitch is a little inside, but the guy at this plate steps back and wallops it to the fence. One run comes in. Two, three, while George Alonzo chases down the ball and wings it back to the infield. The hitter is chugging around third, looking for an inside-the-park homer. The ball is traveling down the line. Don't cut it! Don't cut it! I'm shouting at our third baseman and focusing on the incoming missile. I trap it in my glove and turn to tag, put the tag on the runner, which I make. Whatever other conclusions are drawn from this episode, let the record show that I made the tag. Third out, R at bat. Only my friend in the blue shirt and chest protector chooses not to see it that way. He's hardly finished sweeping his arms across his body when I'm on my feet charging. I got him, I yell. Safe, he yells back. Safe, safe. I nailed him with two feet. I nailed him two feet from the plate. That dang self-righteous smile again. Well then, too bad I didn't have my contacts in. (laughs) The runner is safe. The ump turns his back, clicks his ball and strike counter back to 0-0 and bends down to brush off home plate. This is too much, really. Ed heads toward me, motioning calm. But how can I, a minister of the gospel, be unimpassioned about such a blatant miscarriage of justice? I follow the umpire. So just exactly, just what exactly would it take around here to get a guy out? You need photos next time? Blow-ups? Next batter, speaking. See, that was the third out, so I'm the next batter, chowderhead. Ed, on his way to restraining me, pivots and heads back to the mound. Why waste the steps? Ed knows over when he hears it. The ump resumes his smug smile. But pastor, there's no way you can be the next batter because you're out of the game. Out of the, out of the, then it dawns on me. Here I am, pastor, leader, role model for my flock. And I've just been ejected in front of God and the Zion community cheering section unfortunately a large one, from a friendly athletic competition for losing my cool and bad-mouthing a community recreation employee. My credibility as a spiritual mucky-muck, so carefully preserved through eight months of Sunday services and raucous board meetings, has just been blown over a couple bad calls on a ball diamond. This is the third week we're talking about bean failures. The first week, we saw that Paul was a failure, uh, one of the most accomplished followers of Jesus ever, I think. Uh, and, but still, he was a man who struggled with knowing what he wanted to do and what he didn't want to do, and yet much of the time ended up doing what he didn't want to do and not doing what he wanted to do. We saw that Paul understood that even though we are set free from the eternal consequences of sin, we're still going to struggle with it for as long as we live in this life. See, in this life, we're always going to be playing catch-up as far as holiness goes, as far as our wanting to be done with sin goes. We're we're always playing catch-up. We've been given a gift, and our job is to chase after it all the time, and we're going to fail at that sometimes. Last week, we looked at Elijah, a man that God used to to great effect, a man who, who witnessed dramatic, miraculous 
miraculous proofs of God's power all the time. He was God's agent. He was the guy that, that did the stuff. And yet he still, even after all that, he still fell into depression. He lost his hope. He lost his, his energy. His get up and, and go was, was gone for quite a t- some time. And I, and I hope if you were here for that, you came away from that story realizing that, you know, being down or, or blue or even if you're, if you're clinically depressed and it's not the same, these are not the same things as being a failure at following Jesus or being a servant of God. Well, today I want to look at a man who, who failed mightily on, on more than one front. He was a leader. He was God's appointed leader, in fact. And... Um, his failures were much worse and much more severe than losing your temper and getting ejected from a church league softball game. His failure includes adultery, neglecting his children and his family to the point of tragedy, and even conspiracy to commit murder. And yet he is still said to have been a man after God's own heart. Now, of course, many of you will recognize who I'm talking about in King David, the greatest king that Israel had ever had. Under David's leadership, Israel went from being a collection, a loose collection of, of tribes who oftentimes fought amongst themselves more than did other people, to being a real nation, a regional power in that part of the world. David also wrote many of the Psalms in the Old Testament. And remember, those were the, those were the hymns, those were their church songs that they sang at the temple and at the synagogue. And many of the songs that we sing today take their lyrics largely from the Psalms that David wrote. In the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel was delivering the bad news to King Saul, David's predecessor and the first king of Israel. Saul had drifted away from God, and he seemed to have forgotten that he was serving as king at the pleasure of the Almighty. It was an appointed position, not an inherited position. It was no tenure or anything like that. God had put him in that position, and God was about to take him out because he had gotten too big for his britches, as people sometimes say. So Samuel is acting as God's agent and he confronts him and Saul make excuses and he lied and he tried to pass the buck and God had finally had enough so Samuel was given a task to go serve Saul with his walking papers. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 13, a couple verses there. I know Ruth's got a slide. And the prophet here was challenging Saul on his disobedience uh, of Saul. And Saul's reply was to make excuses. He would say, well, you know, it was, there was this reason, there was that reason. And verse 13 is Samuel's response to Saul's attempt at this buck passing. Samuel looks at him and says, how foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave, command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, that man, who at this point was really still just a boy, was David. The youngest son of a, of a, of a fine but pretty undistinguished man named Jesse. In the book of Acts, in the New Testament, Paul summarizes the whole story. He says, God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, if somebody who knew your father, whether he's alive or, or gone, said, you're just like your dad, how would that make you feel? Or if you're or a woman and someone who, who knew or knows your mom well said, you know, you're a lot like your mother. How, how would you take that? Well, you know, if your dad was, was someone who was an honest, upstanding, hardworking man, he doesn't have to be perfect, but he was someone who provided for his family, he was faithful to his wife, and then you're going to take that as a compliment. 
And if your mother was or is a caring, talented, godly woman, loves her children sacrificially, then that person is paying you quite the compliment, aren't they? They say, hey, you remind me of your mom. Well, thanks. What if somebody said, you know, whenever I'm around that person, they remind me of Jesus. Now, that would be a huge compliment to any of us here, wouldn't it? Wow, you know, I I try to be like Jesus. I know I I don't do a very good job sometimes, but for someone to suggest that they see my efforts reflected in my words, in my actions, in my interactions with people, that, what a great thing to say about me, you know? Well, that's pretty much what God was saying about David. He's like me. The things that are important to me are what's important to him. He reacts to situations and circumstances like I react. What I feel and think about things is how he feels and thinks about things. What's important to me is what's important to him. Now, I don't know if there's any better thing that God says about any person in the whole Bible than that. Maybe when Jesus said that uh, there had never been anyone before who had been uh, better than John the Baptist, that might be a little bit, uh, that's right up there too. But I don't know if anyone else did better than being called a man after God's own heart. However, when you look into David's life, you don't necessarily find what you might expect to see in the life of someone who has gotten such a high recommendation from the Almighty. Instead, you see a very inconsistent person. On the one hand, David wrote some amazing praise songs to God, as I said. He proclaimed his love for, for God's law and for God's rules and for God himself. And yet, when David wanted to, the, to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem after he'd established his capital, he disregarded God's instructions for how that was supposed to be done. And a man died because David did, disobeyed the safety regs. That's basically what happened there, okay? David was loyal to King Saul, refusing to let him to take Saul out, even though Saul was trying to kill him. One time, there's a story in the Old Testament, Saul's in a cave and he's... Uh, using the restroom for, for, to use a euphemism there, David's hiding in the same cave unbeknownst to Saul. David could have slipped up behind him and, and slit his throat when he, was, uh, when he was taking care of business there. But David didn't do that because he said, God put him in office, God can remove him, it's not going to be. Now, that's not going to be me. That's commendable. And yet David, on the other hand, was not loyal to his wife. But instead he had many wives and he had a lot of concubines, which were kind of almost wives that David took in to... Uh, Help make political alliances. Well, I've got plenty of wives. Well, this guy, this, uh, he's, a, he's had this tribe over here, and it'd be good to have them as, a, as, a, as, a, as allies. Well, okay, send, have him send a daughter over. I'll, she'll make her one of my concubines. That was the kind of thing that went on all the time. And, of course, you almost certainly know the story of how David saw a neighbor lady bathing on her roof one night and how he, he sent for her. Hey, uh, send for the neighbor lady. And how he, then he slept with her and then he ended up having her husband killed when this woman came up pregnant with David's child. That's a pretty bad thing to do. And I doubt we'd even let even a, a very popular politician get away with something like that these days, but I could be mistaken. We might, uh, we might make excuses for him too. And then there's the whole highly unpleasant situation with all of David's children by these different wives and concubines. Once one of David's son, uh, 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 a man named Amnon, was in lust with his half-sister, si- half a, a pretty girl named Tamar. And I know we go, oh, you're half-sister? And I have half-sisters, and that, that never crosses my mind at all. You know, that's just you. And uh, Amnon and Tamar shared a father, King David, obviously, but they had different mothers. Well, Amnon was just, he had the hots for his, uh, his sister. 
And he conspired with another family member, a cousin, to arrange a time when he might be alone with his half-sister. And then when they were alone, he makes a pass at her. And she says, ew, and refuse. And so he, he rapes her. And later, when David found out about this heinous crime, he, he didn't do a thing about it. Eventually, Tamar's brother, her full brother, Absalom, he did something about it. He killed Amnon, and this caused a rift, understandably, between David and Absalom. And eventually, out of that, Absalom started a rebellion against the king, against his own father. And it was a, a tragic and terrible situation all the way around. And while it was not all completely 100% David's fault, you can't help but wonder if, you know, if he'd been paying better attention to his own family and, and rode herd on that mess a little bit closer, maybe it wouldn't have gotten as out of control as it did. So that's a thumbnail sketch, just a real quick one, of King David, a man whose faults were, were not few and they were not minor. And yet he was and still is known as a man after God's own heart. How do we rectify that description there <clears throat> given to him <coughs> excuse me, by God with the things that we read about him and the things that we know about his life, when, what we know about him from reading the rest of the Bible? I've always liked the story of the two brothers who terrorized this small town for decades. These guys were, they were trouble. They were unfaithful to their wives. They were, um, uh, they were abusive to their children. They were drunks. They were dishonest as businessmen. And the younger brother dies one day unexpectedly. And the surviving brother then goes to the pastor of a local church. He says, I'd like you to conduct my brother's funeral. And uh, he said, but it's important to me that during the service, you tell everyone that my brother was a saint. I want you to say my brother was a saint. And the minister says, but he, he, we both know he was far from that. He was not a saint. So the wealthy brother pulls out his checkbook. He says, Reverend, I'm prepared to give $100,000 to your church. All I'm asking is that you publicly state that my brother was a saint. So on the day of the funeral, the pastor began his eulogy this way. He says, everyone here knows that the deceased was a wicked man, a womanizer, and a drunk. He terrorized his employees, and he cheated on his taxes. And then he pauses. He says, but as evil and as sinful and as rotten as he was, compared to his older brother, he was a saint. <laughs> well, is that how we're supposed to understand King David? Say, yes, you know, he was, a, he was a murderer, he was an adulterer, he was a neglectful father and all this kind of stuff, but compared to the rest of the kings of Israel and Judah, he was a man after God's own heart? I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. <coughs> I think we have to conclude that God was not complimenting David on his moral purity. He doesn't call him righteous like in the same way that he does some of the other famous Old Testament characters. David's not remembered for being blameless in, in moral matters, as we've noted. But if you look at a couple of incidents from his life, you can kind of get this idea of maybe what it was about his heart, what it was about his demeanor, his sense of compassion, and his priorities, what it was about him that God was holding, it up, holding him up as an example of and praising him for. Now, one of these incidents came at the end of Absalom's rebellion, uh, I told you how, uh, two years after the rape of his sister Tamar, Absalom took revenge by killing his half-brother Amnon. And then Absalom had to run, and he lived in exile for like three years. Eventually, 
Absalom and David kind of reconcile, but even after this reconciliation supposedly happened, Absalom begins to orchestrate this coup. He starts to set, he sits out by the gate and he, he curries favor with the people there and, uh, may, and, you know, and, and when people complain about the king, he probably wouldn't stack, stick, stand up for his dad. He'd say, well, yeah, you know, there, you do have a legitimate gripe. If I was king, I'd, I'd, I'd listen to you. I'd see things your way. And, and uh, so he, he's fomenting, he's laying the groundwork for this coup. And then he does... Uh, uh, rebel against him and for a time after Absalom rebelled it looked pretty bad for King David he's on the run he had to leave Jerusalem the capital city Absalom comes into town and he, he takes up residence and he acts like he's the king in, in every way and eventually though the tide turns against Absalom and, and against King David's express wishes at the end of the, the rebellion David said don't, don't kill Absalom don't hurt my son but Absalom was killed. And the day it happened, <clears throat> David's anxiously waiting for news of how the battle had gone. The first messenger comes back from the battle and tells David the good news that he'd won the battle, but the king's only question was, is Absalom safe? What, what, about, what about Absalom? And the messenger says, well, I'm, I'm not sure, really. So he says, okay, well, you just wait here. Next messenger shows up a while later. Good news, your majesty, the rebellion is crushed. You have won. Your forces have prevailed on the field of battle today, etc., etc. David asks again, the only question that really matters to him at this point in time. Will somebody tell me if Absalom is alive or not? You know, the messenger, he's thinking, he's telling the king good news. He says, well, I wish that all of your enemies were as dead as Absalom is. And David breaks down. Thank you. <laughs> You're a good man. I don't care what Jane says about you. It's an old joke. I've used it too many times. Uh, hopefully the, the next preacher will have better jokes, but thanks, Dennis. That does hit the spot. <clears throat> um, David breaks down, and he starts crying. And I'm not talking just a few tears and some whimpering and, and some sniffling. He, he's, he's screaming. He's crying. Oh, Absalom, my boy, my poor son, Absalom. If only it had been me who died instead of you. Now see, when it comes to kings and dictators, the bond between father and son has, has never really counted for all that much in the course of human history. Many kings have been offed by their children, and many kings and queens have, have killed their own children, their own nieces and nephews, their in-laws, their parents, you name it. Anybody they thought might challenge their power. That's happened all throughout human history. Absalom had wanted to kill his own father, and yet when he was killed... That father was heartbroken. Oh, he says, if only it had been me instead of you, Absalom. So you see, David was a man who had a rebellious child. And yet, despite that rebellion, he loved that child. He forgave that child's sins against his father. Now, do you see any parallel there between David and God, heart-wise? We rebel and we're forgiven. By our father all the time. And you probably remember the story of how David's affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband came to light, don't you? It's in uh, 2 Samuel 12, and that explains what happened. There we go. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. <clears throat> there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. 
He raised a little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. So Nathan tells David this story. David's furious when he hears this story, and and he wants to kill the rich man who took the poor man's pet away from him. And Nathan says, hey, buddy, that man is you. You are the guy who had everything that you could ever possibly want, and yet you stole from another man. First you took his wife, and then you took his life. It's, it's a very powerful story. And it's a great lesson, you know, about, about blind spots. You know, those areas where we just don't see how we're, we're screwing up. Because we've all been those, I, I hope you've been there, I have more than I like to admit, where, you know, you're thinking things are fine, and someone comes to you and you say, do you see how someone else might have been offended by that? Or do you see how you're ignoring this person? Do you see what you're doing there? And you're going wow, I didn't until you just pointed out. Now I see it and I feel about this big, you know. It's a great story about about blind spots, about uh, those times that that we just can't see. And David could not picture himself in that story until Nathan pointed it out. You know, we see it coming reading the story. David's upset at the guy and Nathan says, hey, buddy, that's you. To me, the thing that speaks to why David was a man after God's own heart is how David responded when that blind spot is pointed out to him. He didn't pass the buck. He didn't offer excuses. He didn't even try to buy time to put some kind of spin on it. You know, he looks at Nathan and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Basically, he says, you know, you're absolutely right. I blew it. I didn't see it. And I thought it wasn't a big deal. I thought I had my bases covered was behind me. I thought I was in the clear, but you have shown me my guilt and I have no choice but to acknowledge it and to take responsibility. And later he wrote a, a song about his guilt and his shame, and we know that song as Psalm 51, and we're going to look at a couple verses with me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal, a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And there's more to this psalm, but the point is that one of David's greatest qualities was not that he didn't screw up, but it was that when he did, he admitted. He he admitted it. He repented. His desire was to face the music as soon as possible and to get about the business of finding his way back to God. And he wasn't cavalier about his sin, but he was honest about it. He knew he was a mess. He knew that he was rotten. And he knew that the only answer was to admit his sin to God and to throw himself on God's mercy. Now, I may be mistaken about this, but I seriously, seriously doubt that anyone here, as bad as you might have been at some point, as rotten as you think you have been or are, I doubt that anyone's level of sin has risen to the level of David's. Remember, we're talking about abuse of power. We're talking about fatal neglect of your family. We're talking about conspiracy to commit murder, all sorts of serious, nasty stuff. And yet God compliments him by saying, that David reminds me of me. Now, coming from anyone other than God, that's going to sound ridiculous and prideful, but it is a great compliment, especially when it's paid to an adulterous murderer. Think about that. Now, 
On a lighter note, the story of Pastor Carl. Ejected from the church league softball game. I can see how that would happen. Let me tell you how the story ends. I do have a new nickname. The first Sunday after the big game, Ed Rodriguez and the boys gathered at the lectern during announcements and called me forward for a presentation. As I stepped sheepishly among them, to the accompaniment of congregational titters, they reached under the pulpit and hauled out a brand new softball jersey. They held it up for all to see, front and back, and handed it to me amidst cheers and applause. Ironed on the front was the numeral zero, stenciled neatly across the back were the words, Pastor Chowderhead. <laughs> Two things. One, our sins are almost never as horrible as we think they are. Almost never. And two, on the occasions when they might be close, when they maybe are or almost are as bad as we fear, God is still more than willing to forgive. So, you know, fess up, repent, take your medicine, and move back towards God. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, help us to realize that we will never be perfect. And you know that. And that's why you sent your son Jesus to die for us. We have been relieved from the burden of guilt for our sins by your son. And we ask you would help us to live that relief out in our lives. We do not want to treat our sin cavalierly. We do not want to make light of what is still a serious barrier between us and, and you but at the same time, we don't want to minimize your sacrifice of your son by pretending that it's something that we can take care of ourselves. We cannot. We cannot do anything that will truly take care of our sin. We certainly cannot become perfect in this life. So I ask that you would help all of us to remember that our sins are never as bad as we think they are. And that even if they were, your grace is still there for us. You are willing to forgive. And we just need to fess up to you and repent. And you will accept us back gladly. We thank you for that assurance. May it be more than words to each of us in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.